Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Newism podcast, where we talk to social innovators and disruptors to discover how they would shape a new, more inclusive economic system fit for the modern world. Our guest this week is David Gregg, the Artistic Director and Joint Chief Executive of the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh, which is participating in this month's Edinburgh Festival and associated events. David is a renowned playwright and an advocate for the benefits of placing a greater emphasis on art and culture within society. His work has taken him around the world and he constantly looks for ways to give a platform to different voices. David argues that any future economy must have arts at its heart. I'm here with uh, David Gregg, playwright, artistic director of the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh. And we are talking about newism, blank sheets of paper, what would the world look like as a, 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 with a new economy, uh, a completely new paradigm. And what I'm very interested to kind of find out about is where you think the arts uh, would fit into that newism. If you had blank bits of paper, where would art be in that? I, I would put it in the centre of everything. I mean, of course I would, in a way, but actually um, I think about a futurologist I was speaking to recently, uh, sorry, not speaking to, but I, I, I was speaking about, because I heard them on the radio, um, and this woman who looks at future trends was talking about her son, and she said, when my son is 18, I expect I'll be saying to him, yes, by all means, go and study law if you like, but make sure you have some theatre or music to fall back on, because the point she was making is that um, technology is going to colonise all systematizable knowledges um, in the same way that the Industrial Revolution took away huge chunks of manual labour, huge chunks of intellectual labour in all kinds of fields will be um, withdrawn. But the one thing that artificial intelligence can never do is um, it, it, can, it can never tell stories, it can never sing songs, it can never write songs, make plays, make films. Um, so just on a very crude level, where is the human in this new world? Well, the, the, the human space is the, is the space of creativity and the space of um, uh, story and I would also say empathy because the other uh, sort of a profound role, particularly of theatre, but, but perhaps of all of the arts, is that what they do is they allow you to inhabit, however briefly, another consciousness. Um, and indeed, in some cases, many other consciousnesses. When you read a novel, when you watch a play, you're, you're inhabiting not just the consciousness of the writer, but the consciousness of the characters who themselves are influenced by the actors. And um, so it's a very multiplicitous worldview that you're engaging in and bathing in while you listen to a story or a, a play or a film or a novel. And um, I think that something inherent in doing that is the development of empathy. So Joe Clifford, the uh, Scottish playwright, says um, uh, empathy is a muscle, theatre is the gym. I think it would be fair enough to expand that and say empathy is a muscle, literature is the gym, or literature is the in the widest, e widest sense, yeah. the exercise or exercise devices. The so I think there's something. So 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 when you say, well, 
as you go forward, for me, it's, it's not simply that the only human space that we've, we have is the creative space, the, the cultural space, but also that inherent in that space is the idea of imagining what it might be like to be someone else. And then we talk about isms, well, political isms to me, it feels like uh, in order for a meaningful democracy, you must have art, the arts and culture completely open and accessible and at the centre of what we do because that's otherwise how do we put ourselves into the shoes of the other person and uh, uh, and and you know I mean I think you get into the situation we have now where we have democracy without empathy and which is I don't think democracy I think so it's not democracy anymore it's 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 democracy's well, well, modern you, democracy you well, democracy doesn't fit the modern world maybe that's a way of putting it I think this complicated I certainly think that democracy as we currently understand it this very simplified very I mean think about democracy uh, how recent a thing it is I mean the idea that it's almost the default, or that, it, that, that, that it's the default kind of governance system of the world is, is really um, at best a hundred or so years old. Uh, you know, I mean, the Americans uh, uh, and, the, and, the, and but even, you know, the, the women, some women got the vote in 1918, never mind. And the vote itself is still, the franchise is still a one every, once every four years, or you vote for your, mm-hmm. you know, your local councillor. I mean, but compared to what the Greek sense of democracy was, which was, a, you know, the citizens having power over their own polity, or democracy in the sense of um, if you were, a, a, you know, a, 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 a tribal group of hunter-gatherers, you know, for the hundred or thousand of years or so in which humans were evolving on the plains of Africa, you know, yes, then you have types of democracy where I guess everybody is having a say, people are having to talk things through, they're having to imagine futures, you know, discuss things. The, a vote every four years isn't that. So I think, I think it's not, I'm very pro-empathetic democracy, complex democracy, democracy that understands that. I, I think maybe we're discovering that that simple notion of the, the sudden poll, the referendum, that that, that is perhaps, um, or at least at best, it's only one tool in our armory. Yeah. And it can't be the only tool. It's, it's really about having, in some senses, established democratic institutions. So yes. a democracy is based on you have a legal system or a judicial system which is fair. Yeah. You, you, you have a governance system which is, is similarly yeah. fair and etc. etc. And these are and I, I would apart. say one of those institutions would be a cultural institution. That would would, so, so build on that because that's yeah. interesting. So what's that cultural institution look like? Okay well let's just parallel it with the judicial for a second. So it's independent from so the judiciary and legal system is independent from government. Yeah. It's understood to be a mixture of specialists but it is available it's understood to be available. we also understand availability is very important we understand through unless everyone has access to justice it's no justice at all so forth I think there would be an argument for saying that culturally it's similar that um, culture is independent is another estate so if not the fourth estate it's the fifth estate or the sixth estate I'm not sure but it's it's another estate of 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 the polity of the city I like to think of cities because that brings me back to the Greeks, but also because I see the Lyceum as the city 
theatre of Edinburgh and um, I think a city is a kind of unit of, of democracy that I can understand but so I see the Lyceum's job for example um, as being to both represent the city mm-hmm. to and, and in doing that that means we represent it sometimes like a football team uh, we have to do well you know the, yeah. the teams you know we have to be the best so that people can come and see the best theatre the best art but but and and we go and play big matches abroad and hope that we you know bring home silverware. So there's that sort of almost silly but important level. Then there's a second level that we represent the city and that I think we need to say well who is in this city and what stories have they got to tell? What stories? So are we you know um, are we finding stories from people? Are we are we putting people on our stages? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that in some way represent our city. Uh, th- th- there is a, a, a famous quote, so famous that I think a number of different writers have said it. I've so far counted um, four. The, the, the quote is essentially that somewhere doesn't exist until it's been written about in a novel. Right. Alistair Gray is quoted as having said it, okay. but I think V.S. Naipaul might also have said it. <laughs> I think Milan Kundera might have said it. I think they've all said it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I talk about a theatre representing Edinburgh, I would say that there is a sense in which if the voices, the places, the stories of Edinburgh are represented on stages, there is a, there is a very real sense in which um, you then are an are kind of almost creating Edinburgh, you're sort of singing Edinburgh into existence, you're making it real. Um, that may sound very frivolous, but I, I think actually, if you think about the effect that movies have on cultures, um, causing them to feel real, even to the people who've lived in those places, you know, mm-hmm. there's an argument that um, Scotland doesn't really properly exist in the cultural imagination until Bill Forsyth comes along, <laughs> or you know, or, yeah. or not Scotland, but you know, the, no, there no, is a certain type of a certain uh, type of Scotland that, that is conjured into existence by that, even though it was always already there. But yeah, I understand. I understand. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, but so, so, so I think culture, and, and I think the last sense is actually much more of a civic sense that um, the Greeks theatres were used both as performance spaces for theatres but also initially they were the places of vote taking and political debate um, and I think there's a, a similar thing that, that a city theatre needs to provoke and challenge the citizenry and to put into the consciousness the things that need talked about, the taboos that need poked, the um, questions that need asked. So perhaps in a similar way that the BBC is a pub, considered to be a public service broadcaster, I think there's a certain argument that theatre has a role, as a, a public service role almost, uh, to, to sort of um, provoke debate and discussion and, and similarly to be a place for debate and discussion. So I think for me it's, it's the level of the art itself purely as a, as a um, High, not so much high art, but the quality, high quality art, real, mm. brilliantly, beautifully made art, is transforming and should be accessible to everybody. So that's one important job. I think the second job is conjuring the city into existence by representing it, representing it, bringing stories onto the stage. And I think the last level is this sort of civic 
level of um, um, uh, promoting discourse and debate. Engage, now, and engagement. Yeah. And, and if that's true of theatre, I think you could argue every art form has, could, could contain those same three strands. So basically what you're describing there is in a sense is a set of values that are running through in art, which is about your imagination, about inclusion, about debate, about empathy, yeah. that has to be there in any kind of modern economy um, uh, yeah. and, and connected up. Potentially can't really be on its own, it's got to be connected up with other things that are going on. I think it is, yeah. I think it's... I think it's. Uh, uh, I think that culture is a social glue and and I think with we are in a time of the loosening of social bonds um, and uh, many of the ways in which we are supposedly connected to each other are, are digital and, and screen wise and whilst there are many good things about that I don't think that they substitute for human face-to-face uh, -face interaction and I think culture is one of the last engines of human face-to-face -face interaction that that we really have I mean we don't have you know we talk about markets but we don't have market we have I mean there's the farmers market in Edinburgh but even that's a kind of heritage institution in a way it's a middle class it's not a we don't have a market like and you. small actually as well. yeah <laughs> but I mean you know, it's it's up the road from a place called the grass market, which would have been mm -hmm. an engine of face-to-face -face encounters. Mm -hmm. It's no longer, and and the markets now are, are, are so digital things. You're obviously a, a, a strong believer in community. Then, yes, community is yes. the essential part of, of yes. our newism. It's got to be there where we are interacting yes. and. So many commentators now talk about isolation as being an issue. So we're becoming isolated. We get, we we are our heads stuck in our screen right enough, but we're we're not coming out into the street and we're not interacting yes. with our neighbours and our families and so on as yes. we did before. Yes, yes. And again, I think theatre in particular, arts generally can be a huge engine of community creation. We did a show just recently at the Lyceum called The Hour We Knew Nothing of Each Other, which is uh, a, a play by an Austrian writer called Peter Handke which um, is really premised on a town square and it's, 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 it, it just follows people crossing. It's like people watching. It's, mm -hmm. you, you imagine sitting in a cafe in you know, uh, uh, Italy or somewhere and you just see people crossing the town square. This is what inspired him. He, he, he was in a town square and he saw a coffin be taken out of a house and then carried across the square over to the church. And he said that for the next hour, everything he watched in the square somehow was alive, was animated by meaning as a result of his mm -hmm. having sort of seen the, 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 the coffin. So he wrote this play and it's very surreal, it's very beautiful, it's all lots of crossings and it has in, fa in effect 400 characters because 400 different people cross the stage ranging from Abraham and Isaac crossing the stage <laughs> to an, you know, a skateboarder to um, uh, uh, you know, crowds of people to soldiers. You know, it's, 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 it's a surreal, poetic, strange, fascinating piece. Normally done by a group of 20 to 30 actors, uh, 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 professional actors. That's how it's been done in Europe, where they have big repertory theatre companies. We decided to do it with, uh, uh, in fact, in the end, it was about 110 Goodness. Edinburgh citizens <laughs> who signed up to do it. 
and we did it and and we had uh, uh we we made this show with huge numbers of costumes i mean it was great you know an, an extraordinary uh uh technical achievement but we played for three nights to big houses um but i was backstage for one of the nights and i was watching these hundred people move through their routine it's quite an avant-garde piece of work it's not dissimilar to a choir learning something by james mcmillan or um, another avant-garde composer this is not easy stuff you know um but backstage they moved in a sort of flow there was a i thought it would be like a machine very tense people rushing but it wasn't they were actually they were in it they were in the zone and they were moving through their paces and then there were sections where some of them didn't have so much to do and they were all dancing backstage to the music that was you know we'd had this composed music Fantastic. and i i had this thing where i thought god this is in this room there's 600 people watching it and there's 100 people making it and we we're all together without words for one hour and a bit no phones no distractions we're just present and what's being created is this flow and this um community and of course there's a number of different communities being created but 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 that those hundred people became over the rehearsal period the common project of making the show actually was a kind of community so i think that's a long way of saying but theater can be an engine of making community it's an extremely good engine it makes community on a small scale when we do professional shows but you can use it on a big scale um, then there's also the community who feel they belong to the theater because they come to the theater yeah. um, uh, and you can and you can bring people who aren't necessarily ever going to be professional actors as such and put completely them on stage yeah. and, and that makes them absolutely. feel empowered a bit and part of something absolutely just the joint the shared project the shared project is a I mean, huge thing. I mean, I'm really, you know, you talk about a lot about the kind of Greeks and, and yeah. originally where theatre comes from. I mean, and how that connects with democracy. And you touched on yeah. that earlier. I, I, I find that 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 bit um, of what you're saying um, a good learning, if if you like, for us in the future. Maybe you could just expand sure. on your thought. You know, you've, you've talked to me about this before, yeah. about where Greek theatre, where the Greeks were in their thinking and how yeah. that connects to the present and maybe to the future, actually. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the first thing to say is that uh, uh, tragedy, the, uh, the, the Greek tragedy, we think about that, um, it was not actually something that evolved over, you know, many thousands of years slowly. It actually kind of burst into existence. There had been various types of ritual, various types of performance, but the thing we understand as tragedy, actors and chorus, burst into existence in Athens, and it burst into existence in a kind of few decades, really. And what's interesting to me is that the other thing that was bursting into existence in exactly those same decades was democracy, Athenian democracy. Um, now that could be just coincidence, but I don't think that it is just coincidence. I think that they're in deeply related to each other. Um, the other thing that was happening in Athens at the time was that uh, Athens was the centre of an increasingly powerful Mediterranean trading empire, really. And 
it, it was making more and more connections with other islands and places in the Mediterranean, cities in the Mediterranean, but also people were coming into Athens. So there was a great influx into the city, which led to the question of who, who is Athenian? Who mm -hmm. has rights? If you, if you have a democracy, you have to know who we are. If you don't know who we are, who gets the vote, you know? Yeah. So that's very important. Yeah. So immigration is a part of what's going on. And then this last thing is that as the Athenians were forming democracy, um, the decision was made that to be an Athenian citizen, you had to have an Athenian mother. What that meant was that uh, instead of Athenian men being able to marry anybody, they were really wanting to marry an Athenian woman. And because just by sheer population, there is obviously a limited supply of Athenian women, what that means is suddenly women, and in particular mothers, start to have an enormous uh, shift in power because their consent, mother's consent, mothers had, a daughter couldn't be married without the consent of the mother. So the consent of the mother to the marriage becomes um, a very key element in the creation of an Athenian citizen, the, the child. And the reason this is all being written about rather brilliantly by Professor Edith Hall, so it is to her, all the, to return to her for this knowledge, <laughs> yeah. rather than my crude retelling. But what she points out is that it is no coincidence that Greek tragedy almost always has as its centre the question of the consent of women and the importance of the consent of women for the harmonious household. The Greek is full of dysfunctional families, partly because these plays are a kind of lesson um, to, the, to the polity going, look, guys, you, you have to have harmonious households in order that uh, we can go forward. So what I, what I think is fascinating is that in the Greeks, you have this moment in, in, sorry, not in the Greeks, in Athens, you have this moment where tragedy uh, is being invented, democracy is being invented, and at the heart of that is the question of who are we, and also consent, in particular the consent of women. And I think those questions, I mean, I don't think you could be more at the heart of today, who are we, and the consent, uh, and harmonious family relations, particularly issues of consent and, and, and women. So I think that's really, really interesting that they, they connect together. Um, now, the Greeks then have a whole philosophy about what theatre is and what its job is and how we do it. And I think there's a great deal we can learn from that. But I think the, the initial thing for me is just this central understanding that, that to have a democracy, you have to understand who we are. To understand who we are, you have to have um, some relationship to both the family and to the other, to foreigners, to strangers, to immigrants. And I think that's where theatre then comes in as a, as a, you know, a central engine of asking those questions uh, and debating them. So in terms of the we are at the moment then, here we are sitting in Scotland, we've been through a huge number of debates about our uh, independence as a country out of the United Kingdom. Um, a lot of discussion there about the we as, as local. So mm -hmm. in, 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 in this huge global world now, we're all global citizens, but we all want our own nationality, mm -hmm. our own identity. So, you know, in terms of the we, we are global citizens, mm -hmm. are we? Are, or are we sitting in Scotland here, are we Scots, or down south, mm -hmm. are we English? 
uh, and a lot of the discussion around that, and I'm sure you, you were involved in all that, was about that identity, that trying to say, okay, we are in a democracy, who are we? So you're, you're a Scot sitting here, who, who do you think we are then in the democracy as we sit here in Edinburgh today? I mean, one thing I would say is that whichever side one was on during the Scottish referendum, I do think we can all, as a polity, take great pride in that the decision that Scotland seemed to take communally that the that I to be Scottish is to be resident in this country or at least to be Scottish insofar as pol the p politics was concerned yeah. was a matter of residence not um, blood and yeah. History. So, so basically, just to be clear, so what we're talking about is if you if you lived here, if you lived here, you could vote regardless of yeah. so, if you were Polish or whatever. Yeah. You, so you, you could, could if vote. you had two Scottish parents, but you lived in London, and yeah. then you didn't get the vote. If you had two Polish parents and you had were born in Scotland, or even if you had simply lived in Scotland for five years, you did get the vote. And I felt that was tremendously important, not just practically in terms of what the vote meant. Uh, I think it was very important practically because I think it turned a, a, an independence referendum that could have otherwise had a much nastier edge to it to not have that edge. But I think it was something else as well. It was like a collective decision to say identity is layered and complicated. And I do think it's part of the reason why Scotland's relationship to Europe is possibly slightly different than um, the rest of the UK or particularly should we say England's relationship to Europe because I think Scots are used to layered identity and we already were within the United Kingdom because we were already used to the notion that you could be both Scottish and British and that those two identities were layered they uh, sometimes in competition sometimes complementary uh, but nevertheless constantly present then you add on top of that a European identity um, Again, that's not necessarily something that every Scot would have accessed all of the time. I'm sure that there's a kind of, you know, metropolitan sort of elite of Scots who, who would be much more conscious of a Europeanness than perhaps um, folk might have felt in, uh, you know, a mining village in Lanarkshire. I don't know. I'm making assumptions. Quite possibly, there would have there would have been Europeanness there as well. I'm, I'm merely saying that the existence of another possible layer was not a surprise. And then, of course, you can go further down and say, well, there's a Scottish identity. But Alistair Gray talked about the Scottish archipelago, and I think that's also true. There's the idea that a Glasgow identity and an Edinburgh identity are the same, you know, that would be ridiculous. So there's, there's the city layer of identity. There's um, linguistic and regional areas as well. Orcadians would be fundamentally furious if you lumped them in with Glaswegians um, or, or indeed with Shetlanders. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the, you know. So the, I think that awareness that we all contain these fractal mm -hmm. layers of identity is something that, by accident of history, Scots have had access to, and so therefore we never necessarily held to the notion that identity being related purely to your body and the genetics you've inherited. It, it, you know, that doesn't make any, it, it's never, or it doesn't appear at the moment to have great traction in Scottish politics, which I think we should be very proud of and I think is, is going to be very helpful going forward. 
So, um, so, so, so I'm, I'm still, and it's really interesting what's happening in Scotland and other places in the world in terms of the small versus the big. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, going forward, as you talk about this newism in terms of the global economy, is just how, how we how we create this we. So yeah. we all well, we all having a vote in the, in the U.S. elections now because the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world currently. Um, so if we all did, we'd have a different uh, president, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, or, or or is the we actually um, our small areas of community of no more than ten thousand people only? Is that the we, and we can all fit well, into I'm a, a, a theatre? I'm a sort of. Um, I I have quite specific. I think about this stuff a lot, and I have opinions about it. <laughs> Which, so for me, I absolutely thought we were on the right track about two to three years ago. Which is that I think, of course, I think collections of smaller units is how we should be because I think that I think politically, uh, the nation states should shugle down a bit into smaller units because I think for lots of different reasons. Um, I think the closer you are to your centres of power, the better. But I think they can only do that in a world where the the combining was also working. So for me, I found that it made sense for me within the context of the European Union to think about Scotland having what I would call, in quotes, independence. Because independence within the European Union, when the rest of Britain was also in the European Union, was really just a, a kind of rearrangement of some of the Mm. Uh, questions of sovereignty, if you like. Um, and then I would also argue that uh, uh, within Scotland, I think one of the great flaws of this country is that we're far too centralised. And I think Scotland is too centralised, even this small nation of five million. Never mind. I think the, the United Kingdom is ludicrously centralised. And I think um, that centralism remains its worst feature as a... As a um, as a polity, I think it's dragging us down. I think the, 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 if you compare us to, 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 to Germany or even Italy, where different, where there's real sources of power in, you know, different Switzerland, Switzerland, Switzerland and, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, the, what other countries can do what they like, I, but I think Scotland should be much more um, decentralised down into, I think, democracy all the way down, you know, yeah. the way I would sort of so, see so, it. But, but that only makes sense if you go up as well. So it feels like you have to have democracy going all the way up and democracy all the way down. Right. And that way, I think it makes some sense in a globalized world. What seems to be happening now is this thing, which I think is literally insane, that is a, a kind of retreat to the boundaries of the nation state. So both the big is kind of shugling, the, the, the Europe is under threat as there's a sort of retreat to the barriers of the nation state, but also, um, the, the the small is under threat as it as as as, as power has devolved upwards. Oh, upwards to the, yeah. so, so this seems to be precisely the wrong direction of travel. Yeah, it's, 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 I, I think you're probably right. I would I would agree with you because you can't get away from the fact that you can't go back in time. We are a globalized, connected world. Yeah. We we have the internet. We have aeroplanes. Yeah, they're not going to go away. In fact, they're going to develop. So we are going to be citizens of the world, and for that yeah. comes responsibilities. But at the same time. You know, in, as I understand from where you're coming from, critical to anything would be a s smaller areas of democracy yeah. with, in, in, in each of these areas, art at the core. 
So you might, yes, you might yeah. a lot of people when we've been speaking to talk about the emergence of not nation states, but city states. Mm -hmm. Cities start to have greater power and economics are, are held, the economies are held within these local cities, etc., etc. So you would argue then that in that city would be art, art at the core, people yeah. connect, collecting around art in the yes. different forms. Yes. And then moving on in the city. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you, you know, you can look at that in, in a couple of different ways as well. You, you, you know, there is an argument that it is already art that, in quotes, regenerates cities. And I think there's something about the power of that to recognise that a city like Glasgow absolutely has experienced um, a civic and cultural and economic regeneration in not least through art uh, over the last 20 or so years. But then you can also look at other um, but, uh, um, other parts of cities, other areas where art is increasingly at the heart of, of, of the way that a city can kind of operate and perceive itself. Barcelona, for example. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but then I would also say there's even a bit of a danger to that. And one thing that we need to be really aware of is that the way that art binds a city together it shouldn't just be about a kind of gentrification because artists go in and the bohemians make a place nice and then in comes the money and the bohemians are driven out. And You know, we, we know about that cycle. I, I'm a little bit less... Some people are really, like, horrified by that cycle. I don't mind that cycle too much, I think, but I do think it's gone too far now. I think, I think a city can't operate unless it has um, housing, unless it's possible to live in the city, uh, you know, on reasonable incomes, not just on crazy rich incomes. I think a city like Edinburgh, where so much of our property is being bought up uh, as kind of investment, you know, from around the world, results in a city where, where um, artists, never mind artists, just people, just people are being moved yeah. further and further to the margins. And artists are just, a, they're just a symptom of that. Uh, so, so for me, the, when I talk about art, regenerating the city yes there's a this there is a commercial aspect to that and i don't think that should be ignored i think it's very money is valuable to a city but i also think there's a deep you know um a communitarian and cultural thing that binds a city together and makes it a pleasant place to live for everybody um, and that means making sure you can have music in pubs making sure that you can have space to put uh, to, to gather and make plays in community centres, make sure there's proper funding to to have workers who support that kind of work. You know, so all of that stuff is central as well. Yeah, I'm, absolutely, absolutely get that. And I, I've seen, you know, I, I, I would obviously I work in the area with, with homelessness, and for me, a critical thing in, is when people dis describe a, a building as a home yeah. or a house. And they're different. So you could, you know, you have houselessness mm. and homelessness, mm. and these are mm. very profoundly different things. Houselessness is about the supply of of housing, bricks and mortar, mm. which is one thing. Homelessness is about not mm. having any kind of connection into family and friends, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is also. I'm I'm currently uh, a bit obsessed with. I'm, I'm reading um, a great deal about a uh, Aboriginal culture and the culture, one aspect of Aboriginal culture, which is the song line, uh, which is a huge area, so I'll, I'll be sort of brief about it. Um, one thing about that, though, is that it's, a song line is, on one level, it's just a song. It's a song that, you know, on another level, 
it's a map. It actually, by knowing the song, you know a route through countryside. In another level, and this is what I find very interesting, it's a deed of ownership. So the, the fact that you or your particular family know that particular song means that it's, it, it, that country, in a sense, belongs to you. But it doesn't just belong to you, not like ownership, like you, you belong to it. it. I mean, it's profoundly understood to be the case that, that the reason that you have to know the song is because the, the land doesn't live without you singing the song. So you have to sing the song for the land to exist, the land has to, you know, you, there, there is a, a symbiotic relationship between you, the song, and the countryside that you're in, the, the landscape. Now, there's layers and layers of other things to do with that, but why I find it fascinating is it draws me back to this thought that, that we said that Alistair Gray had earlier on, that a place doesn't exist until it's written about in a novel. There's a sense in which home, the difference between a house and a home, is that somehow you, you are related to it. You sing the place into existence as much as it just exists. By which I mean what turns a place into your home that you belong to it is that you know its stories, you know its songs. You, you, not only do you know its stories and its songs, but you can pass those stories and songs on to another set of people, another generation. Um, that's when you, 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 a place is truly the place that you're, you, you, your country, your, your home. Yeah. And I think that's again puts culture at the centre of belonging, not uh, blood, not ethnicity, yeah. not power, not soil. The old Norman McCaig, who owns this land, the, the laird who possesses it, or I, who am possessed by it, you know, I think that's also something very important in terms of cities and yeah. community. That's a really good way of describing kind of what I'm talking much better way of describing it because it's the whole issue of the, the housing and people buying houses to in, as an investment. Yes. Uh, which I, I just find yes. wrong personally. Yes. Because, because you're buying a house for a home and that home has all of these yes. issues and affections and connections yes. that you're talking about. And also, about. I think it's a very denuded sense of home to think of it. I mean, of course, for most of us, home is partly the building in which we happen to live, but, but very denuded to think of that home is also, it's the connection to your neighborhood, it's the streets in which you live, and it, it's only those things, if you have connections with people, if you know people, it, you know, you, you have uh, webs of interaction and so on and so on. So. And, and, and actually, one way of, of, of looking at it, if you just speak to children, ask, ask a child about home, and they won't tell you about doors and windows and so on and so forth. They'll tell you about the smell in the kitchen and their friends yeah. and the yeah. coming around to draw pictures or whatever. And that's what's in, in the home. Yes. Our issue in that society I would like to see going forward is, of course, if you don't have that, you're completely excluded. And that's yes. what you shouldn't have. So we should all have home. And as you're describing it, it's got these elements in it which make us feel part of, of, of our wider community. And of course, what we then have to recognise, so we now live in a globalised world. So uh, Aboriginal people who for, some of whose song lines have been passed down unbroken for uh, possibly somewhere in the region of 40,000 years, which if you think about it, um, these are these are art, human artifacts. They're the oldest human. These these are some of the oldest human artifacts in a sense, but they're not artifacts. They but they are embodied in the in the in the voices and bodies of humans, and they're passed on. Um, but Aboriginal people were living in a sense in a homogenous way for a long period of time. I think what we have to be careful about when we think about home 
and culture and the smells and the things and the things, which are a birthright. We should all have that. We should all have a place that feels like that. And yet we have to be very careful because that, that is immediately a way that you start to close down what belonging means. And what does that mean to someone who's arrived in this new globalised world? We all move around. What, what happens if you find yourself, for whatever reason, in Scotland or in, I find myself in Poland? And I don't know. I don't have that relationship. How am I included? Am I, am I outside? Or, or is the way in which I can be brought in? Yeah, so it, it, I think a value going forward in this new economy has to be about inclusion all, yeah. the, all, the, all the time. Um, because that's well, because we are moving around, um, even more so all the time we're moving around. So you have to create ways in which you include yeah. wherever you, you which, go. Which then, again, and I would always return, but that to me returns to theatre, uh, to, to art. It's not the only way. I absolutely get it's not the only way, but it is a really good way of building community, building connection, building interaction. And of course, it has a double effect. If there was lots of, uh, uh, actually, there were uh, various people who um, were not born Scots in our hour, we knew nothing of each other, um, participating in a show like that creates a bond of community. But the other aspect is that hearing the stories brought to us from Poland or Eastern Europe or um, Somalia or from recent refugee immigrants or indeed economic migrant, migrants to Scotland, hearing those stories, those stories told to us, they then become in a way our stories as well and our circle of inclusion is widened. So it, making work gives us community but our community is expanded by the voices that we bring in, whether they're you know, novelists or poets or playwrights. It's, it's, it, it, just, just so interesting talking with you. What, what, one of the things I'd like to kind of just ch- change subject slightly mm. quickly before we finish, just talk a bit about you. Okay. So, so you, you know, I know you've been in different countries and so sure. on and doing stuff. And, uh, and t- tell me just briefly about your own journey as, as a player out in the arts and wh- where you've been and, and, and some of the things you've seen and the stories you've, sure. you, 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 you've been able to um, get hold well, of. Uh, so I was... I mean, my first connection to the idea of home is that I was, in fact, my, my entire extended family from a small area really ran northeast of Scotland. Uh, but my brother and I, we were b- born or brought up certainly in Nigeria in the 1970s where my father was working in the construction industry. So I had a very odd relationship to Scotland. You can hear from my voice. It's not a Scottish accented voice, and that's partly because of the schooling that I had. Um, so when I came back to Scotland... My, I had a complicated relationship to home because in one sense I had as much ethnic belonging as you could possibly have in a, in a way and yet on the other hand felt quite distant from, from it in other ways and I think a lot of my writing comes out of the negotiation between some of the thoughts and questions around that arose then out of those little disjunctions of identity um, but I, I, I became a playwright after I left university. I did drama and English at university, and then I became a playwright um, in, in Glasgow in the first instance in the 1990s. I, uh, and we did a company called Suspect Culture, who uh, we founded, Graham Etoff, a, di- a director, and myself founded really, actually, in order to be European. We were, we were pretty clear about it. We sort of felt we felt ourselves in a European tradition and we sort of set the Scottish funding body the challenge. We said, most 
Scott's theatre goes to the world via London. You sort of have a hit in London and you go, so we said, we're not going to do that. We're going to take a flight direct to Madrid and we're going to collaborate with a, a, a theatre company in Spain. And we did that and we made a show called Airport, which was all about, um, uh, 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 well, nascent globalisation, in fact. Uh, we made a number of shows. We made a show every year uh, uh, throughout the 90s. So that was very much about making connections in Europe and about thinking of ourselves as Scotland going out to Europe and, and uh, um, seeing ourselves in that tradition. At the same time, I was writing my own work, um, which was getting performed in various places. But then a key shift for me happened around about 1998 when my agent said to me, um, how would you like to go to the West Bank? Well, I needed a bit of money, actually. I was very low on money, and, and I had a young family, and I said to my agent, I need, I need some income. You need to get me a job. <laughs> and I, I sort of meant, you know, get me an episode of Casualty or something. <laughs> but she said, how would you like to go to the West Bank? And I thought, I literally, that's, I was so naive, I thought that was Paris. I mean, I thought it was like, you know, the, the left bank. You know, But in, in fact, she said, no, 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 the West Bank in, in, uh, to, to write... Uh, to, go, to write a comedy about the Intifada in Arabic. That was the gag. I mean, literally, that is what the gig was. But it seems, when you think about it, you're insane. But what it really was, was that I was to go with Rufus Norris, who is now the artistic director of the National Theatre in London. And we were sent to, do, to devise a show with a company of actors in Ramallah, Palestine, just at the very beginning of the Oslo process. So it was a, very, a moment of optimism. And so we were going to devise this um, piece of theatre, and we did, and we went, and we spent a month in Palestine. And it was the month when um, the, uh, there was a suicide bombing in Tel Aviv, and the Israeli government responded with F-16 attacks on Ramallah and the nascent Palestinian Authority, and blah, blah. You know, to cut a long story short, I had a... I had a tiny taste of something that, whether it's for Palestinians or people so many places around the world, of what it feels like to find yourself in a place that is uh, being bombed, that is locked down, that is, you know, um, under the uh, military fear of occupation, you know, tiny taste of it. Uh, through working with people and through trying to create a show in that environment. Um, that then began a relationship with the Arab world, which is, just grew and grew by different uh, relations where I did work in Syria, uh, a lot of work in Syria with young playwrights there, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Tunisia, and Morocco. And, and in most of that work, it so happened just before the um, um, uh, so-called Arab Spring. Uh, uh, so I was working with all these young writers, and then when the Arab Spring started to happen, all these young writers were then themselves deeply involved in various revolutions. The Egyptians were all in Tahrir Square. The Syrians uh, were indeed, some of them, absolutely out on the streets protesting. Um, the Tunisians also. Uh, then, of course, well, you, we know what happened in Syria, in Egypt also, uh, much less violent, but still, you know, a kind of tragic crushing of of, the, of those very spirits. And so, obviously, I had made these connections with these young writers. They're now writers approaching their 
30s, but uh, so I was much possible trying to keep in with them and try to keep in contact with them and try to encourage their own networks and put them in touch with each other. Um, and uh, that's something that that's a still an area of interest to me, the, the Arab world broadly, uh, Palestine, and, and but the Arab world more broadly, uh, particularly Syria, obviously, at the moment. And so that's work that I've, I've kept up in different ways. Um, I haven't yet really been able to make the Lyceum, I haven't found a way yet where uh, that, I've managed to bring that home to roost. It's, it, it is a real tricky thing. You've got to be careful, I think, sometimes about a kind of refugee art. You know, you say, we're going to do this show about the tragedy of Syria, which is good in some ways, lots about that's good, but it, you've got to be careful. You know, there's, there's so many stories from Syria, so many stories to tell, and you have to find the right way where you're not, where you're not, I guess, rendering either the people about whom the stories are told, the Syrians, or the people who are seeing the stories into the role of sort of victim or um, saviour, you know. So I haven't yet, I think somewhere I would love to start to find a way where we can find exchange. During the Arab Spring, so-called, because they don't call, they would call it the awakening, but the, the, there was a really exciting moment when I was suddenly able to bring Arab artists to Scotland to teach us about art in a time of revolution. Because at that point, in two, right about 2008, we were talking about Occupy Wall Street, we were talking about activism. Yeah. Yeah. A load of young artists were obsessed with art as activism. And here was a set of young artists who'd experienced that at the sharp end. And, were, and I loved that for the first time, for me in my engagement, instead of me taking knowledge to the Middle East, the Middle East was, I could bring knowledge from the Middle East back to Scotland. And I'm sort of always searching for that moment where we can, where that's the interrelation. That's when I really think it's particularly juicy. And I haven't quite found that yet uh, at the Lyceum, but I do hope I will. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain you will. It's been uh, really great talking to you, David. We could probably go on talking. I know, I do apologize. I go on do, and do, on. Do, No, no. The, the, this, in, it, what I found with, with other people we've been interviewing, because people feel deeply about the need for change, so people can talk for hours and we yeah, can start to have a conversation and it, it always feels we have to kind of cut it off so yes. we have to kind of stop yeah. somewhere. But, you know, I think we'll come back and visit this over yes. the next months and we'd, we'd like to do that. Um, but it's been absolutely great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for your insights. Very valuable. And I think, you know, everybody would agree art's got such an important role to play um, in, 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 in any new economy particularly when you look at where we are in, in, in this day and age. So I think people would agree with that. But um, we're working on these black bits of paper, so you'll be, be part of that and let's see where yeah. it goes. But thank That's you very fantastic. much again. Thank you. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. David is thoughtful and persuasive, and it was a pleasure to spend an hour hearing his vision for a society in which art and culture play a central role. We hope you enjoyed his conversation with Mel as much as we did, and we would love to hear your thoughts via our Twitter feed at Newers and Talks, or our website, newersandtalks.com. Next week, we're talking to Professor Liz Jones, an expert in global health and development. We hope to see you there.